Hello and welcome to CityWare Selectors podcast, Let's Talk About ESG. I'm Margarita Kirakosian and joining me today is Ian Povey-Hall, Head of Sustainable Finance and Impact Investing at Acre. Ian, thank you for joining us today. I know you've been dealing with asset managers and asset owners requesting for like sustainability hires for quite some time and also asking you for advice how to structure their strategies. And I was wondering what was the biggest change that you've noticed in the last couple of years? Because this is a very much shifting and moving space and uh, change is happening almost every other month uh, within that. Well, I mean, I think from sort of three, three to four years ago, we started to see a real uptick in terms of the requirement of this and the more material focus of our investment clients, um, driven from you know, regulatory requirements, really client demands, and also market risks and opportunities that moved it from a function where it was more of a, a nice to have or request from a certain types of clients, be they more philanthropic or charity based, to actually being something that's much more fundamentally hardwired into the commercial strategy of asset managers and therefore needing significantly different resources and operational structures to be able to, um, to capitalize on that. Um, and that's created you know, quite a significant amount of uh, movements in the market in terms of um, the uh, desire to acquire specialist fund management teams, to bring in um, more technical data orientated teams and individuals um, to then be able to feed into um, more forward thinking ESG related strategies and, and those that look at sustainability themes and, and impacts methodologies. When we were talking about hiring people, hiring portfolio managers for these specialized products, so when, when I, I'm thinking about it, of, of course, you have only a handful of people with real kind of like long-term experience and the amount of ESG prof- professionals has mushroomed in the last couple of years, understandably, because a lot of firms need them. But I was wondering kind of like how you have noticed this kind of like shift and how you help in kind of like asset managers to navigate this kind of like trove of multiple ESG experts. Yeah, well, I think there's there's kind of two core areas that, that we see it. Either there's the specialist investment side, where often you'll see people that have you know slightly differentiated backgrounds, maybe they have more of a focus on environmental sciences, biology, and their kind of prior education. So as they've evolved as fund managers, they've they've had more of a kind of entrepreneur type approach that ends up manifesting itself in new product launches, even though they go out to, to, to start within a uh, more mainstream um, asset manager as a, an equity analyst, etc. But then they they're part of teams that are starting to look at this extra dimension of how you derive value, um, often more kind of thematic sustainability, and then that evolves into um, more kind of impact and, and Article 9 as it is now. Um, but the other the other piece that we do a lot of work is in the centralized teams that are that have been developed and have grown quite rapidly over the last three to five years in particular, where asset managers are really trying to focus on how to transition most effectively and look at the majority of their assets and then be able to um, integrate ESG factors and concepts, but also um, find opportunities to be able to derive products that focus more on the on the, on the upside i guess of um sustainability themes and so you know that's something where 
it's um it's a balancing act in terms of how much you centralize versus how much to do out on the desk and and you know there's a quite a big variety of approaches across the different managers over the last five years we're starting to see a bit more uniformity um but there's still quite a big difference depending on the product mix you have the size of the asset manager and the types of clients you serve I'm glad that you mentioned regulations because um, regulations are driving how uh, sustainability is evolving in the fund industry. And of course, you have uh, Article 9 funds where you have um, sustainability as an objective. And I was wondering, does it matter at all how you are hiring for, for example, Article 9 strategies compared to Article 8 strategies, for instance, because you do require a special, specific knowledge for Article 9, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. And I would say for, for Article 8 funds that it's often more a manifestation of the of the house strategy in terms of how they're able to, to integrate ESG factors and then um, report on that and evidence that through their, their process. And quite often there are strategies that can evolve into Article 8 strategies as a function of that um, more transitional approach, whereas the Article 9 funds um, predominantly do come from individuals with different types of, of backgrounds, but also require a different um combination of skills to be able to ex execute those strategies there are some where they are um yeah a pair of investment managers that have looked at this for a long period of time and then really gone the extra mile around looking at you know outcomes-based products and organizations and funds that um or strategies that can um distill that um but quite often it's about having a different combination of skills often it can be you know it needs to be a larger team because the nature of particularly in illicit equities a lot of the impact is is derived from engagement activities and that um generally comes from having individuals in the team who have that experience of either from an investment stewardship perspective or from their experience in professional services or the corporate space working with um, senior executives from portfolio companies around how they can evolve their business models and hence represent that additionality that you look for in outcomes-based funds that fit into the article nine side um, on the private market side, um, it's a little bit more nuanced than that and, and gets deeper into um, like a value creation in terms of how they engage with the companies that they're um, invested in, either you know as a majority or a minority stake. And so we've done some interesting work bringing people from the cutting edge of strategy consulting, deep knowledge in particular themes around things like circular economy, energy transition, um, who can then really, you know, be a key part of that value creation story because they've got extensive backgrounds of working with companies um, to improve their bottom line through an alignment of sustainability, sustainable outcomes, or more explicit kind of purpose alongside the profitability of the company itself. Um, and that also kind of leads us to the impact measurement reporting side, which is absolutely key. If you're looking to evidence those strategies, um, not just in terms of evidencing that to investors in terms of value, but also from a regu regulatory perspective. And so we've seen a big increase in that, that requirement. And often that's pulling people from more of the family office, nonprofit sector, and then moving into um, more commercial asset managers. as They look to be able to execute these types of Article 9 strategies. Um, and we've seen a big increase in the, the consulting and kind of data analytics market um, around the whole data, but also frameworks, external verification, um, and a number of strategies that, that we've worked with um, that categorize themselves as Article 9 often um, want to have a capacity to be able to say they're not marking their own homework, as it were. So effectively outsourced verification of the impacts and the outcomes that are um, defined in the strategy by using a third party to be able to do that. 
I was wondering as well, uh, so you, you, you mentioned that it requires specialist knowledge, for example, to run a private equity um, Article 9 funds, for instance. And what's the most esoteric request you had to deal with? Because I am imagining that these days, almost to a degree that client scientist could be a person you could hire for these kind of jobs because you need to look at data differently. You need to look at the different set of data to reach meaningful results. Um, yeah, I mean, we've seen, we've seen uh, I suppose, that more in the centralized teams, both the bigger asset managers and also on the sell side as well, particularly around climate risk modeling, um, kind of real-time uh, temperature risk modeling, where you know, asset managers are looking to have a centralized capability that can um, analyze changes in temperature and then future cash flow modeling. And then that's a tool that can be applied across portfolios. Um, generally, it's in deeper demand by Article 9 strategies, but you can see it across the board adding value for mainstream strategies as well as, as climate risk starts to to really bind in um but we've we've been sourced to find things like geospatial mapping analysts um kind of carbon accounting climate risk modeling um and, and increasingly more around the natural capital space kind of water waste and recycling um and and uh, yeah quite a bit now around the carbon offsetting space in private markets and you know how people can object orientate different investment strategies for that offsetting piece so whether that's land use strategies um aquaculture regenerative agriculture those types of things which are and quite often they fit within a more traditional context and background but then it's adding the overlay of that strategy and and, and then being able to deliver something that, that fits within an article nine kind of thesis and so it's often putting together people with different types of track records but within the right kind of sectors ticket sizes and deals and then complementing that with a team that are able to bring the more outcomes-based approach to selecting the underlying investments. And do you specifically look for uh, people in the financial industry or you're venturing out into more specialized areas for example? Yeah, I mean, we're quite fortunate in terms of Acre as a wider business. We have uh, two other divisions that focus on the, the broader corporate space that we call sustainable business and also the sustainable energy side. And so we kind of are able to pick across the piece. And actually, you know, a couple of the most interesting teams we're working with at the moment are coming out of the corporate venturing space where they've been able to do some really in innovative stuff off the balance sheets of some of the world's largest companies and now want to be able to spin out and operate that entirely on a... Um, on a fund basis, as opposed to doing maybe you know half their time doing investment work and or deals, and the other half doing more corporate finance type activities. And there's some really interesting capacity there that we've been able to to look at through the networks we have across the corporate sustainability space and academia as well. Um, that's an area where you can bring in some interesting people for quite specific technical roles. But in reality, it's 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 fairly uncommon to bring people in, um, you know, in the investment side who don't have that prior track record and experience. Um, although a trend we're seeing a little bit more of is for the larger strategies that are looking to um, kind of move more towards the progressive end of Article 8 or 8 plus as some people um, have started to refer to it as having someone on the desk that has more of a um, kind of sustainability and impact aligned background that can give a bit more of the um, the kind of the um, the special ingredients in terms of how they analyze and engage with companies then how they communicate that to their investor base is something we're seeing a bit more of particularly for those larger strategies where ultimately they've got the um, the economics to support it as well You've mentioned Article 8 Plus, which is, to my knowledge, is not like a sad category, but it does come up a little bit in conversations with 
asset managers, for example. So why are people leaning towards kind of like uh, differentiating different types of Article 8 strategies? And how are you dealing with clients when they are coming to you with this kind of request elementary? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely not a separate category. I think it's something that comes up in marketing speak. And I think it was partly driven by the breadth of strategies that are currently sat within Article 8. And so for, for fund managers that are looking to, to try and you know, articulate that they have you know a stronger kind of integrated philosophy and they're looking at maybe more kind of sustainability themes and more of the upside, but they're, for whatever reason, not willing to go you know, quite as far as being an Article 9 fund. They're talking about themselves in that light. They feel kind of differentiates themselves from um, you know some of the um, a, a opportunity there is to be with Article 8 when really all you're doing is demonstrating um, conceptual in integration as opposed to really doubling down on um, ESG factors and, and using them from a risk and opportunity perspective. Um, and so yeah, that's that's kind of something we've heard more and more of maybe in the last six months. Um, Clients don't really come to us specifically talking about kind of eight and eight plus. That's more something we hear in the market in terms of how managers are looking to try and raise capital. Um, but yeah, from our side, it's, you know, if you're looking at eight to eight plus, it's, it's partly the kind of ingredients you're able to provide those investment teams. So they can then utilize to create more differentiated processes. But ultimately, it's from a more traditional investing standpoint as opposed to Article 9, which is from the outset looking to you know, deliver a different um, dimension in terms of value for investors. And when I'm thinking about adding expertise to uh, an asset manager's arsenal, let's say, so oftentimes, mm -hmm. like, of course, you're growing it in house at times, but also you're going out and hiring from elsewhere. So you're offering beneficial terms, etc. And then the team that has already loads of experience comes over. But from my perspective, that also brings about unique challenges as well because you are lifting someone from one corporate culture and trying to insert them into another and they won't necessarily have the same infrastructure that they can lean on which can create certain difficulties and also friction so when it comes to hiring from outside of the company and from another company especially um so what are the unique challenges that that kind of approach brings about Quite often with those kind of team moves, there's some key drivers um, for the individuals um, and quite that can be wanting to move to a more entrepreneurial environment. They've worked within a large platform. They've been able to be quite entrepreneurial, like I was talking earlier on, you know, build out the differentiated strategy that then maybe isn't getting the, um, the commercial kind of platform because of the amount of competition there is. There's so many products at larger managers. Um, but you're right. There are challenges then in terms of you know, how they're going to function, operate in a different environment where there isn't necessarily you know 300 strong global distribution team it's more about relying on the you know, fund managers themselves to be part of that um communication story um and so ultimately it's um it's around having people that have the experience of doing that before generally and so there is a bit of a, a model um to be able to bring those new fund managers into and help them have the support to be able to, to grow on a more, more entrepreneurial platform um but you know it, it, it's difficult it takes time but you know, one of the key drivers we've seen is wanting to move from a generalist to a specialist and then be able to um, be marketed as a suite of you know, sustainable impact funds rather than being sat on a, on, a platform, on, a, on a product platform where there's a huge number of generalist funds and then there's the sustainability impacts to sat on the side. Um, so that's often a key driver in terms of individuals looking to move as well as 
ultimately the economics that come, in, come from being part of a more entrepreneurial fund. Um, we have we have moved a couple of teams the other way. We're actually you know, being part of a, a much larger distribution platform and having more resources. Was something there was a key appeal for them. Quite often that depends on just where the underlying um, distribution platforms sit, the yeah, applications for that strategy. And you know, to be able to tap into particularly certain retail markets, it's quite difficult unless you're within um, the larger players. Um, so I don't know, there's no one, one size fits all and it really is kind of you know, horses for courses as it were, but it's definitely created some interesting dynamics in the market in terms of you know, some key teams that have moved around and then you know, how different asset managers have looked to then um, kind of uh you know kind of backfill after that and maintain their capabilities um we've been involved on you know i guess both both sides in terms of you know more reactive or kind of more proactive ways that um managers have approached teams over the years um interesting you're saying that and i was wondering what is the difference between when you're working with a bigger asset manager and smaller asset manager like speaking about esg hires esg developments what kind of trends are you seeing uh, depending on the size of the client effectively yeah well i mean the the large asset managers ultimately have got more um more balance sheets to be able to kind of put towards this and so you know, for the for the top kind of 10 to 15, you've seen, you've seen some big increases in team size, particularly over the last five years. Passive managers hiring quite a bit on the stewardship side as a function of you know their business model and 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 um, just the sheer requirement of covering that many stocks to be able to evidence an ESG and stewardship story. Um, you may have seen the BlackRock paper that's come out recently around you know how to be able to offer a more kind of straight through processing approach to stewardship and engagement. It'd be interesting to see how that um, how that plays out. Um, but for smaller managers, you know, and particularly in the since um, the new regulations came out, we have seen a trend of you know, more boutique managers that would you would say, and just looking at their strategies, are clearly Article Eight, and they have been for years in terms of you know being a, you know, an active manager, tape it, taking long term positions in companies that they know very well. Um, however, adding the amount of reporting and regulatory burden on top of that is quite challenging for them. And so we've seen, particularly in the last years, nine months, quite a bit of forwards and backwards between those type of managers and the asset owners that are now looking for this extra level of reporting in conjunction with the regulatory requirements that are coming out. And it'll be interesting to see how that levels out in terms of how much long-term requirement there is versus the spike that we've seen in the last year, year and a half. Um, and um, yeah, we've been working with a few of those boutiques for looking at the, the right way to resource that because you don't want to suddenly have a large team that ultimately isn't required in the long run. Um, but I think we are coming to a bit of an inflection point around the size of these centralized teams and the makeup of those individuals um, in the longer term being quite different to where it was for the last kind of three to five years. And what, what is the difference? So how differently is it going to look like uh, kind of like in the next couple of years, let's say? I think previously there's um, there's, a, there's been some, a requirement for kind of more blended roles and more fundamental kind of integration around frameworks and methodologies. Um, whereas now we're seeing a, a greater degree of specialization in terms of the centralized roles and also um, the, the kind of investment teams leaning in and in that integration story. So there's less of a requirement or a need for that integration to be kind of going out and helping to change people's mindsets. It's much more about being able to um, provide the key ingredients, the right type of factors that they're looking to integrate into their strategies. Whereas five or six years ago, it was more about um, 
a bit more of the kind of, you know, not necessarily lobbying is a bit too strong a word, but you know, advocating this type of approach as opposed to reacting to a demand for it. So kind of moving from a bit more kind of observation and advocacy to execution and implementation. And that means that the centralized teams, um, I think will become and are already becoming more technical around kind of key data points, whether that's filtering external data providers, there's so many more now than there were even four or five years ago, um, or actually kind of, you know, building their own tools, like I was talking earlier on in terms of real-time climate risk modeling, et cetera. Um, and then having this more specialized stewardship function as well is something that's come up in the last few years. Um, Ultimately, particularly for active managers, I don't think it's going to be something that's outsourced, but having individuals that are able to give guidance around stewardship best practice and also um, represent the investor, the investor management business around how it positions itself on key stewardship topics. Um, that's where you can really see the benefit of a, of a good stewardship team. You saw, um, um, I think it was Schroeder's and, and Sainsbury's today. Um, you know, that was, a, this was quite a nuanced position to take and without having individuals in the business that really understand um, how stewardship can, can work effectively, um, that's going to be quite challenging. So I think it's a combination, really. I mean, the other piece that we're now starting to see as well is more um, of a corporate sustainability piece required in asset managers. And so you've almost got kind of the three elements to it of how, um, how it's being done on the desk in specialist products, the centralized teams that are supporting that from a, a kind of CIO perspective, and then an additional element that's looking at it from more of a, a group and, and board level around what does sustainability mean to us as an organization and how do we need to represent that externally, comply with regulations, but also um, use it as a differentiator in terms of the growth strategy of the asset manager itself. Interesting you've mentioned further. So how does that stewardship stance differ from what they've maybe seen before? Like what is the unique kind of like edge that they now have that they've built out, for example, that capability? Well, yeah, I mean, they've made, I think, kind of three um, three stewardship hires in the last um, in the last uh, year, year and a half. Um, they had they, they had stewardship capability recently so, uh, before that. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily a huge change for them, but I just think they're a good example of, um, particularly with the Sainsbury's point of being, being prepared to take a more nuanced position, whereas there's, you know, previously asset managers wouldn't have wanted to, to kind of raise their heads above the parapet as, as much. Um, so I think that that's why they, they're quite a good example on that front. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that we touched upon stewardship. Kind of like, how does that uh, change? Like, how is that changing in terms of like, is it the granularity of the subject matters that they are looking at? Is that just the fact that you need to now formulate potentially shareholder resolutions? Maybe you need to formulate a very outspoken position because beforehand maybe investors wouldn't care quite as much uh, how the voting is going, or at least wouldn't care for the explanation why the vote has gone the way it has gone. Yeah, I mean, there's the there's the voting side, but then there's also very kind of the, the active um, kind of ownership and engagement side of actually if you're going to hold these companies, how you're talking to them around their ultimate bottom line, and that's where in the last you know, even the last five years, we've seen a big shift from classic stewardship and corporate governance to becoming a much more involved set of conversations around governance, but also environmental and social factors, implications of companies' business models, and and what they, and that the, the impact that will have on. Um, the, the broader society and the um and the environment and and so though with those starts of factors now starting to come into voting issues you've obviously seen say on climate and things like that where 
asset managers need, need to decide you know which which type of multi-stakeholder body they want to line up with and why um, and so that's again where the more specialist stewardship capability comes into its own you know i think fundamentally it's like if you, particularly if you're an active manager you know that active engagement needs to happen on a company level by the team but there's still a broader stewardship and um and kind of level of responsible investing that needs to have more of a house view um but it's interesting you know some asset managers are setting kind of esg benchmarks and you know, companies that you know can be invested in and can't others are, are more setting out a set of frameworks and methodologies but then ultimately leaving up to the leaving it up to the fund managers themselves um so it'll be interesting to see kind of you know how those different approaches play out mm -hmm. Oh, it's a lot for asset managers to process, it feels like, and you have stewardship that is evolving and constantly has to kind of like become better, more detailed, etc. And then you have Article 9, Article 8, and you need very specialized hires in there. Especially when we are looking at smaller asset managers, can you see it moving towards uh, pooling off? resources of different smaller firms just bundling together and for example using one climate engagement person or like using one specialist on circular economy because it's just impossible to cover all the bases um well i mean you see that on the, from the asset owner perspective in terms of them using engagement services um bmo um federated hermes the eos business um and a few other a few of the other kind of more proxy voting providers that um are starting to provide ens services as well um so, so you, you can have that and then you, i guess you also have the more collaborative engagement approaches um whether it's iigcc say on climate like i mentioned earlier where the you know, asset managers can pull together and be part of kind of big picture um positions that they want to take as an industry but i think we wouldn't i don't think we'd ever see it outsourced at a fund or kind of you know company level it'd be more for those bigger picture um kind of collaborative engagement activities and what about heads of ESG? Because I'm hearing two conflicting views. On the one hand, firms that don't have much experience in handling sustainability are trying to poach high-profile hires from those who already have established them, whilst those who have already made it almost turn around and say, you know what, we are already there. We might not need that one senior person sitting on top. So in terms of the demand for senior ESG hires, uh, can you see that shift and change and always pretty much static as it was a couple of years ago well i, th I think for different organizations the the role itself is, is quite different and so that's where you see people move around and so you know there's individuals that maybe say from i don't know like 2015 to 2018 played a really key role around um conceptualizing and delivering a centralized function that can take organizations to you know a fundamentally strong level of responsible investment esg integration and once that's done and particularly if it's in their characters to be quite change making and like set up new things then it's a very different very different job to then run that function as a and be able to provide kind of you know the best most cutting edge innovative tools to then be able to derive the the final kind of level of ESG integrations, should we say, and really factor-based um, as opposed to frameworks and methodologies. So you know, as the organizational development changes, the role changes quite a lot as well. And so that's why you've seen um, some different moves in the market. And there's a few individuals that have moved multiple times over the last kind of eight years because they've done that kind of you know, projects, feasibility, strategy, and then execution in terms of um, building that centralized capability and then integrating it across different managers. Um, so I'd say that's 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 one that's one side of it. 
Um, and also, you know, now we're getting to a point where I'd say that head of response investment, head of sustainability role is more strategic, externally facing, kind of, you know, can be more policy, regulation, client facing, and is less involved on in the detail of nuts and bolts integration, because a lot of, like I was saying earlier on, you know, the investment teams are leaning into that further and often will have capability on their, on their desks. And so that, again, has changed the, the type of individual that, that would be um, looking for that role and, and successful in it. Um, the other thing we've seen for some of the bigger asset managers is actually that head of role you know, you, when you're really working across, you know, a whole range of engagement of um, investment teams, you could have, you know, 100 different teams as internal clients, and you're managing a team of 15, 20 people focusing on the different elements of, of what these centralized teams need, need to do. And that could even include things like impact measurement analytics. And so it's impossible for the head of to be a specialist and all of that. So the role becomes more about um, yeah, kind of people management, project management, stakeholder coordination, and kind of commercial strategy, as opposed to someone who maybe was a classic head of responsible investment four or five years ago that was really involved with how you actually go about conceptualizing and delivering an integration strategy, for example. So that that positions, I mean, and as you, you also look at the different job titles, you know, it's, it's starting to kind of homogenize a little bit more now, but two or three years ago, across the top 20 asset managers, there were maybe at least 10 different job titles for the person who's the most senior person looking at response investment, ESG, sustainability, sustainable impact investing um, as a function of just where those managers were at the time and how they viewed that function adding the most value. So you would say as well that these days, it's not necessarily straight away a red flag if head of ESG uh, used to be, for example, most recently head of marketing or head of communication, because we are starting to see many more people who are being appointed to, appointed to ESG heads coming from that kind of background, which I haven't quite seen before as much in the past. Well, I haven't seen as, as many, I mean, I haven't seen as many of those um myself but i mean it depends which or what type of organizations you you look at but i i, I would say that if for a, for a manager where they're really focused on the kind of fundamentally integrating kind of esg factor sustainability into their investment processes and also looking at specialist products you need someone that comes from a deep understanding of the investment side and how those products work um and this is quite challenging if you're bringing people from more of a, a kind of purely comms um, and um, and marketing type background. That said, you know, one of the big kind of increasing requirements we're seeing is the need to have people within the organization who are able to really distill the differences in products and strategies and how they operate and communicate that effectively with clients. And so um, kind of you know, sustainable investment strategists, like portfolio specialists, that type of remit um, is definitely one that I think we'll see an increasing demand for over time um, because there's been a big rush. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of it in terms of marketing and documentation, et cetera. But often that, that kind of starts off RFP processes, but then the closer the clients get to actually talking to the investment teams, the actual further away they get from what they thought they were um, trying to buy in terms of investment products. And so getting that communication clear from the outset is something that that type of specialist skill set will be useful for. But I'd say in the in the head of roles, if they're particularly sat within the CIO function, they do need to have the kind of a more fundamental technical skill set around investment products and strategies. 
Ian, I was wondering, because obviously you have a lot of clients coming to you and asking for very specific things, but if you were to have, for example, a no-go list in a way that you wish you wouldn't be asked these questions or wouldn't be dealing with these specific requests that you think don't quite make sense, don't add up, what would you mention in, in this case? Like, what are the bugbears of yours, let's say, where you're like, come on, this is not going to work. Uh, I I wish I had that line somewhere on the website saying, like, please don't bring these kind of requests over. I think it's where, you know, it's kind of, whether well-meaning or not, uh, where it's just more about gaming the regulation than actually kind of doing what it's um, it's, it, it's trying to drive um, in terms of outcomes. And so looking at how you can um, you kind of you know bring in individuals that understand where the regulation is going, can maybe even lobby, advocate around that, but then also you know help to to just support kind of little nudges, repackaging um, that means that you know technically it does comply, but in reality, that's not the fundamental driver of that investment strategy. Um, and so you know we've seen it a few times with um, you know particularly larger managers where they want to bring someone on board who knows about impact measurement and methodologies to look across their whole portfolio and be able to find um, some investments that you can then put into an impact fund. But in reality, they're investments they're already going to do anyway. They're just repackaging it a different way for kind of commercial objectives, which is you know, completely against the point of um, the principles of impact and additionality. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.